The sales culture and whether people are willing to change has a lot to do of where they are in their own journey as a organization. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're super successful, like we were working with um, a company where they were so successful, it, the phone was just ringing off the hook, mm -hmm. right? And so there wasn't actually a lot of motivation to change or to, you know, be more curious, more empathic, more customer centric. Like they didn't need to be, there was mm -hmm. no motivation. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, what I see is companies who start to work with us start to realize like they can't keep doing what they've been doing if they're going to continue to grow, if they, they have to do something different. What's up, humans? This is the Revenue Real Hotline. I'm your host, Amy Rehovchek. Big thank you for checking this out. That was Ashley Welsh, co-author of one of my favorite sales books, Naked Sales. And today we get into all the amazing and beautiful things that come from injecting more design thinking into selling. I started this podcast to ask the tough questions around how revenue is created, the questions no one else was asking, and to better understand the uncomfortable conversations that followed. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll bring you a revenue human shaking up the business of sales, uh, regardless of title. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, do tell a friend about the show. I take that as the highest compliment. And with that, enjoy. Well, if I was interviewing you, I'd want to start with your story. So I will start with my story. And I'd love to hear about a little of yours too. But um, so I am 52. I live outside of Boston in Wayland, Massachusetts. I have two girls who are now both off to college as of two days ago. Woo! Um, yeah. Congratulations, freshman. Mama. Thank you. Um, and uh, I've had a career in sales. So for 20 years, I grew up in selling learning and development solutions. So leadership development teams, stuff like that. And I should say, I guess it's part of my story before that. Um, I have a lot of wanderlust, so I lived all over the world for many years and sort of didn't want to settle down. And then when I did, I fell into sales uh, accidentally, just because I have a sort of entrepreneurial spirit and I like to solve problems. And um, and uh, it's a human game, I think, at the end of the day, which I appreciate. So anyway, 20 years in sales at this one firm and then met my business partner, Justin Jones, who was also working there, who's this rock star consultant the space of innovation. Um, and so we, after four years, decided to leave together and start Somersault Innovation, which was seven years ago. And, um, you know, we, we just started Somersault because we loved design thinking, which just like Six Sigma or Agile or Lean is a methodology, um, in this case, around innovation. It's a process, it's pretty simple, and it's very co-creative and human-centered and curiosity and empath empathy centered. Um, and so we just want to be teachers and coaches of that. Um, but when we started our firm, we realized, like, wait a second, all these skills and tools or so many of them are what the best sellers do. Like you said, you were doing them before you even knew what you were doing, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have a framework around them. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, this is the way I sell. What if we, what, why doesn't, why aren't we teaching sellers how to do this? Mm -hmm. So we pioneered this marriage between some of the tools from the world of design and sales. And we started at Salesforce and I had a friend who was an EVP there and um, we sort of tested the idea out with him and said, well, what if we just like curated the best tools from the world of design and gave it to sellers to help them do better discovery and stay broad, right? Help them stay curious, help them co-create what would happen. And he said, you can try it, try it with a team. Mm -hmm. and the results were ridiculous, partly because mm -hmm. it's like physics. If you focus on things, things change. But mm -hmm. some of it was like the pressures of sales are real. It's the pressure of sales is real, I should say. Like, mm -hmm. you know, someone's breathing down your neck. I remember people saying, you know, my manager will say, you put 50,000 forecast. I don't care that it went away. You need to get it by the end of the week. So, which <laughs> that never like, that never happened to me. I don't I know nothing of these these challenges that yeah. you speak of, Ashley. I guess it's just a Boston thing. <laughs> yeah, just a few people. Really so, what does that do? It makes you like sell anything, right? Like you yeah. must want these, right? You must want to buy this. 
And we, you know, it gets in the way of our curiosity and our ability to connect authentically and really. And be vulnerable. How the hell are you supposed exactly. to be vulnerable and show up? And I love the, you said something about like the etiquette of going first. I think it had to do with the um, starting the interview process. Um yeah. Which I whenever whenever people throw in etiquette into like just I, I'm I'm a I'm a fan but anyway um, yeah oh my gosh okay but continue please continue well so we 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 tried it you know yeah, yeah. and um, it worked and so yeah. seven years later that's what we are doing is sort of curating the best tools from the world of design thinking to help sellers you know sell more essentially at the end of the day, but in a way that's authentic, that's creative, that's co-creative. Collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Wow. So two things, I'm curious about the length of time of this engagement with the EVP at Salesforce that you're speaking of. And then I would, I guess what should have been on the list is why don't we define design thinking? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but how long was that engagement? And then like, what were these like obscene results that you speak of? Yeah. Okay. And then we'll go back to what is design thinking. Yeah. So uh, we worked and we still do, we will work with sales teams. Um, and it's really anybody in the go-to-market community right. roles, um, for about three, three to six months. And so what we're doing is we're teaching them the skills and then we're coaching them to use the skills against a target account or two. So we can really measure the results and that we're very, you know, we're, we're trying to integrate new skills and tools into things that people are already doing. Yeah, that's so smart. And using the target accounts is an excellent way to do it because it really kind of keeps the scope creep from like exactly. going off the wall. Exactly. Amazing. Um, so, um, and then with Salesforce, then we ended up working there for several years and we built their customer-centric discovery model and um, helped them in various in various ways. And in terms of results, um, so in the beginning, one, four account executives drove $13 million in net new revenue in that organization using these tools. A hunter community we worked wow. with, I know it was amazing. Um, uh, hunter community reduced the number of touches it get it takes to get someone to respond to you mm -hmm. by half. 40, yep, to 15 yep. by using these techniques. Wait, I, I wanna repeat that one for our listeners because this was something that was mentioned in the book. They're, the number of touches, right? Yeah. Something that we all know and we all hear about, right? Because we all focus on the prospecting. Um, the number that was thrown out at, at Salesforce was with 30, 40, something like that. It was typical. Yeah. And by focusing on the high value, mm -hmm. um, events and the value delivered, I think it was went to 15, 15, that's yeah. half the touches, ah. half the touches, half the touches. And I know you said 15 million with four reps, but what for, like, Okay, what lift, like how much more, is that a 300% increase in yeah. what they're normally doing just for the context, roughly, yeah, roughly? I don't remember now, but um, it was over 100%. Over 100% off the charts, yeah. off the charts. Off the charts. And it continues, it continues to be that extreme in the different, you know, we've now worked with AT&T and Oracle and HubSpot and SalesLoft now as new client and others. So um it's not rocket science. I no, mean, it's not isn't crazy. Uh, it's, not. it's not. You know what? Listeners, Ashley started her book with a banger story about a rep, an AE that was trying to break into Greyhound, was it? Mm -hmm. And got on, I guess, one of the Bolt yes. <laughs> buses from San Francisco to big, or to uh, LA, LA. Yeah. and kept a lock of the yep. experience. And I'm just, I'm going to stop there and I'm not going to share any more, but like, talk about like being on the end of your, <laughs> your seat. Um, but Ashley, Jesus, like I've never done, I had never done that. Like to go uh -huh. directly to the customer. I feel like when I was at Thomson Reuters, and this is me trying to justify for myself, but really like the, the brilliance and newness of what you brought to the table with this book, um, like thinking about how, so I sold into legal, right? And so okay. if I'm working with business development or project management or the innovation teams, right there, the way that they think about it is their clients are the attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, my, with the startup that I went with right after was a platform as a service that then sat at the intersection between the buy and the sell. So like Google's law department as one example, right? So Google's that they law could department? law department. Okay. Yeah they could see all of their matters, right? And the outside counsel firm. So the, the whole experience taught me and, okay. And I have never had 
it never made more sense, right? This idea of not just focusing on what your clients or prospects need, but what their clients need from them and to be so intentional about it. Yeah. Cause if you can have that conversation, then you're, you're like in the zone of trusted advisor because that's where value is created. That's what they care about. If I can talk to you about what your customers care about, um, that's a whole different conversation. I'm not talking to you anymore about what I'm selling. I'm talking about what you care about. So, I mean, I don't, I love the, like, why aren't we doing this question, but I'm almost like getting, and I like five whys, right. And I love, um, digging in for the root cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will generally separate into like the, the three types of problems, right? Tech problem, process problem, and uh, human problems. And I loved oh, yeah. the the design thinking is yeah. 100% about yeah. the human stuff. Yeah. But I, I, I also, I'm a little bit sensitive, maybe bias is a good word, right? Because of the way that most in our profession think about process, mm-hmm. right? It's, there's a lot of connotations that come with that. And when, when we get into like true process designer process principles, and I'm thinking like a hybrid of let's just say six Sigma and lean, just to keep it tight. It's in most on most sales floors, the way that we design our processes, we're in direct violation of principle number one, right? So I don't even have to go further, which is that all value flows at the pull of the client Mm -hmm. and the sales processes are designed again, to play the forecast game. Exactly. And to qualify in or out, right? Right off the bat. And so like even, even the principles of process like are, but are also so deeply tied to this idea of like the clients um, that, but anyway, so I'll, I'll leave my biases to the side. Why don't you actually just um, define for our listeners what design thinking is and what it represents. Mm -hmm. um, And then like, you know, a little bit on like, you know, the design and sales. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because they are two separate things. So if we just think about what is design thinking, Mm -hmm. it's just an innovation process. It's, you know, usually it's five stages and each stage has a series of steps, which I'll define. And then um, you're moving from trying to solve a problem or come up with a new innovation to your solution. Then you follow these steps, just like you have steps in Six Sigma or Lean or Agile. Mm-hmm. Um, what's different about design thinking as a problem solving or innovation process is it always starts with this sort of obsessiveness about the end customer or user who you're designing for. So if I am designing this a new mug, let's say I'm a potter and I'm like, oh, I've got great ideas for new mugs, right? Most of us are like, oh, I'll go in the back room. I'm going to make my mug and I'm sure people are going to love it because I've got great ideas. Um, Instead, a designer would say, well, hold on to your best ideas, just like you said in the beginning, like, let's put them in the solution jar. I'm going to leave them alone for a little bit. And I'm just going to go watch Amy drink. And I'm going to say, like, tell me about how, like, when do you drink? Why do you drink? So, you know, and how satisfied are you? And what, what things do you love to drink out of? Yeah. Where do you keep your mugs? And how, how is the cleaning process like? And yeah, where do you buy them from? And how do you choose which mugs to get? And why? What motivated you to pick that? Yeah. Does your partner love that you collect all these mugs and that none (laughs) of them match? Or are they, are they down with it too? Oh, they built you this search, this shelf. Exactly. So I become obsessive about the end user and users. And then I collect all that data. And from that, I pull out themes and patterns and say, well, this is kind of interesting that actually, you know, you know, most people drink at before 9 a.m. in this type of mug, but after 12, they drink this way because X, Y, Z. And what I'm looking for is sort of unmet needs or motivations that drive you that you might not even know about. And then I'm designing my solution from that insight. Because if I can design something that really hits at underlying interests, needs, motivations, you're going to more likely love it, right? Love, love, love. So you use design thinking when you want to, you know, decrease your risk of failure and increase your chances of delighting the customer. So if you think about like Virgin Airlines, I don't know if you've ever flown Virgin Airlines. Um, they're know. awesome, right? Yeah, you get yeah. on, it's like comfy, it's blue lighting. They've got the best video, right? The video, I was just going to say the thing. There's dancing, okay? We'll just right? leave it at that. <laughs> you watch it every time versus the other ones, you're like, whatever, turn it off. Mm-hmm. So they use the design thinking process. Any Apple product, 
design thing. You know, these products that really delight us tend to come from a design-centered process. So I want to call out something that you said in there that I think is really important, um, and that is making no assumptions, mm-hmm. right? And so as sellers, we can, one, I, I think that this is a really important thing to just to check yourself always, right? But we, I, I, I use the phrase that I'm allergic to assumptions. And I would say that during interviews or during conversations, asking yeah. for, to be like clarifying, matching it with the fact that I'm an overthinker and allergic to assumptions, but also, you know, I'm, it's, I'm, I, you know, I'd like to hear it from the source and your version is all that matters here. Um, and listeners, we, we can feel when this design thinking process has not taken place, you know, not to, you know, poke fun at, at, at marketing, but when a new case study mm-hmm. is introduced mm-hmm. that like, uh, okay, you know, but, I've, or when was the last time that someone on the, the marketing team or the, you know, I don't know, product team has asked these questions of you. And so these are, the things that happen generally, right? When we have an obsessive focus on who the end user is and what the actual problem is. And I think actually that's another important piece that that you've covered in the book really beautifully, which is honing in on like that, what it's not just what we think the problem is, but, but confirming for it. Okay. So back to the, so you were finishing with the definition of design and then how it relates to sellers. Yeah. So how it relates to sellers is, and, you know, we we talk a little bit about design thinking, but then we sort of let it go because what we're doing is saying which are the tools from this world of design thinking that are going to be most helpful for sellers. It doesn't really matter what you call them. And right. I'm a seller, too. Like, I don't need any academic jargon. Like, give me a tool that's going to work or like. We or don't. don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Where what designers, like I said, are really good at is they're great at discovery right? They're great at really paying attention to what does the customer care about and need. And they have different tools like the four prompts that you mentioned to mm-hmm. like help them stay curious and help them dig in and keep asking why, as you also said, to find out really what do you care about? And so um, so we pull in a lot of different tools into the world of discovery to help sellers do a better job at discovery. And that seems to come up a lot, I notice now. A lot of our clients, big and small, really struggle with discovery. Like people just don't do a good job in part because you have marketing saying, well, this is what you need to sell. And you have your manager saying, well, this is what you need to make and bring in. And so all of a sudden- And this I'm- is how quickly you need to do it. So there's a big rushing period to get through discovery. I think the skills gap, is another piece of it. Um, the, obviously the filter bubble and all that kind of fun stuff, but, oh, I could talk about what's yeah. wrong, what's yeah. wrong with the discovery period. Or that it, like there's an arbitrary end date to the discovery phase. Like the discovery goes through the whole damn thing, friends. Exactly, <laughs> never stops. Or that you have a play. Yeah. And then people will go in with their play. Like they're, yeah, like, like you haven't gonna... even talked to the customer. What do you mean you have a play? Yeah, like that's like, where the selling is over there. No, 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 come back over here, friends. The selling is in the discovery. Exactly. <laughs> okay, and it's okay. also where you build the relationship, yep. right? And you, un, you're, you, we uh, talk about being a problem finder. You're not just a problem solver. You're first a problem finder and you help your customer with you figure out those problems. So discovery is a big piece, insight generation, and then in a, you know, we, we've created these three phases, discovery, insight, acceleration. Each and acceleration. mindsets, by the way, like you yeah. called out the specific mindset yeah. per phase too. Okay. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. But the, oh, the cool months. visual too. Like, I love your. <laughs> <laughs> that was meant to be a very simple read for all of us sellers. <laughs> like, make it simple, make it short. And I, yeah, I like the title, right? Also catchy. Yeah, catchy. Um, so, so you're saying there's the there's phases and I interrupted you on the mindset. Yeah. yeah. Mindsets are curiosity, empathy, and agility. And then in the acceleration phase, we talk a lot about like this co-creative motion. I mean, in all, you know, we because of our brains, we like to put it in phases and categorize so we can remember. But of course, as you said, all of this is always happening. Like you're always doing discovery. You should always have this sort of co-creative mindset. Mm-hmm. Use of stories and visual visuals to engage mm-hmm. is a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. Talk a lot about that. Um, and then some of the specific tools that we might bring in, depending on who we're working with, is sort of building a persona. Uh, for example, we're working with a, a tech company right now that sells into inside sales teams, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're selling into inside sales teams, Get to know the SDR 
sort of role in that organization you're trying to sell into and be able to speak to like Amy, the SDR I spoke to, here's what she does and here's what she's like and here are some of the issues that she runs up against. So let me talk to how we can work with Amy. So listener friends, when I was selling, I would get the buy-in from the executive sponsor to do this soft observation period with the entire team or mm -hmm. with the relevant people. And part of the, the value prop was that, you know, and this is what I would say to the executive sponsor, listen, I don't know what we're going to find, right? When we go and do, but I do know that we're going to find some things and I will package them and deliver them back to you and share with you executive sponsor, what we what we find during the observation period. So worst case scenario Right. This will be like an hour of time with, with with each one of your your people, obviously. But in exchange for that investment of time, at the very least, you'll have a breakdown of what the um, what's happening right in the current state. And so I like I'm like I'm salivating at the idea of maybe we'll get to talk like customer journey maps and like, yes, exactly. <laughs> and like exactly. like writing it out of like whatever. But like I don't know wherever you'd like to take this. Yeah. But um, that was something friends that worked very 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 well with the executive sponsors that had very little risk, um, and often was of great value right yeah. to to that human. Um, and almost always right. I don't. I'm trying to. Yeah. I almost always came back with something massive and then some. And and I just actually talked to a guy um, the other day who said that's called yo-yo selling. And I said, I was like, what's yo-yo? He said, because you go to the top and you ask for permission and then you go back into the organization, you do all these interviews and you go back to the top and say, hey, here's what I've learned. Here's and what we go, found. Right. And I was like, that's exactly right. And um, you learn so much, you build credibility, you start to know everybody. It's really hard to go wrong. I think where you, you do go wrong is if you have this lens through which you're saying, oh, yeah, 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 they need this. I'm they trying to sell this solution. solution. I'm trying yeah. to sell this and I'm only looking for things that fit my solution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where we at literally our brains miss disconfirming evidence, as they say. It's like it's the same term as like motivational bias. We only see what we want to see and we only look to confirm. And therefore, we miss all these other pieces of data. I'm laughing, Ashley, because the solution jar is always, it happens to, it's one of the first things I, I teach people about or coach them on when we're working on any kind of project like this. And I'm also, and you're right, and it's like the, the human brain is just wired to solve yes. the problems. And exactly. we see a problem and our brain, like once you really get in front of it, our, we jump to the solution identified in like a nanosecond, Exactly. in a nanosecond, then we get married to that solution. And yeah. it's funny because I'm working on something um, for, uh, actually, I, I heard you're going to be on the Andy Fall Show. And so, but I was thinking about how, for Andy, right, and how to yeah. package in a way that that kept those biases off of what, and so it, like I physically read it and like was able to go and incorporate it right in that moment of like, okay, how to present what I found and what I think or what I've seen. And in a way that again, keeps that co-creation there and it keeps the, um, you know, the marrying, right? A solution yeah. just, just out of the, out of the realm of possibilities, but it's just, it's not like something that you, once you learn how to do it, like you, you can forget it, right? Set it and forget it. You constantly, like, at least for me, yes. right? I'm constantly trying to like keep my default brain in check yeah. and not do that, but it's hard. It's hard yeah. to do. It is hard. And I was actually thinking about this in terms of the uh, client that we're working with. We saw their marketing deck mm -hmm. and they do do this sort of um, investigation in the organization to figure out what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But then in the marketing deck, the reflection always fits in the four buckets that they solve. Mm -hmm. So if they come back and say, well, you seem to have a problem with cadences and you have a problem with, you know, you don't have an ability to record the conversations. And I'm like, how is it that the, it's already in the marketing deck what their problems are and that mm -hmm. they happen to fit exactly with what you sell? Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, we even have to look at what we're being told to say mm -hmm. and sort of set it aside. It's not to say that you're obviously not going to start to make links between what you sell and what they've 
got going on, but the longer- you're, you're amongst friends, Ashley. Yeah. No, set it aside for everybody else. Set it aside, whatever, like you, you do you, you be true to you and, um, the customers take care of the customers and what they need yeah. and what they're telling you. And uh, when you do set it aside, um, that's where I think the magic happens. Yes, absolutely. That's where uh, the magic happens. Likes to be sold to, right. It no. kills the trust, right? Yeah. It's like all the work that you did to establish, right. That credibility up until that point, once that, that other human being, cause we sell to humans, whether we're in B2B or B2C, we're human to human around here, yeah. um, in reality land, but that other human can feel that. And it's just like, yeah. it, it all goes out the window. Um, but I feel for you friends, those of you that are, have in organizations where there's font police involved or, you know, slide deck monitoring. Um, but yeah, we'll just leave it at that. You have my condolences. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I want to talk about this forecasting game. Mm. Because Okay, so here's where I'm thinking about it, right? And so like, I know that there's not going to be anytime soon a break from like, you know, taking care of shareholders or taking care of the board, obviously. Mm-hmm. I think the incessant chasing after unicorns, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dead bodies involved in that rushing process. Um, but at the same time, I think that learning how to forecast well is just as important of a skill as, Mm -hmm. you know, closing. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm, and then also the last piece, just for communication purposes, I differentiate between sales boss and sales leader, right? Mm -hmm. Same kind of role. Mm -hmm. I think the rest is pretty explanatory. Um, but yeah. And then, oh, last one, I have a mental health. Is it very and wellness? I heard I was listening to one of your pieces on this. Yeah. So say more about that. It's a very important thing um, to me and to the message that I am hoping to socialize. And so, I mean, we can go deeper into it, but like from the four, I I just want to understand more. Like I found myself wishing that the final chapter was longer. Mm. And so like from a leadership perspective, you know, what, what have you, how do we break out of this forecasting game, but still, you know, take care of our, you know, fiduciary responsibility. Yeah. Well, Mm. let's say you friend. Yeah. It's such a great question. I don't know that I have a, I don't have a great answer like us to solve it, but what I see, (laughs) you don't have a solution jar all filled up. (laughs) (laughs) You you see this reinforcing mechanism, which is the Mm -hmm. more pressure you put on the system to forecast and to make the number. um, I think the more people aren't actually telling the truth, Mm -hmm. you know, they're sandbagging or they're, you know, they're manipulating things to get it right versus having an honest conversation, both internally, as well as, you know, with the customer. and there's a balance because I know that the the rush for run rate revenue and sort of the pressure that is put on a system does create revenue. So mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, we'll just like let it go and let's just all be friends and money's going to show up. So um, but I think it's interesting to ask the sellers, in fact, who have to put the numbers into the forecast to talk to them outside of the conversation with their manager to say like, what's act, like, what are you actually selling or doing and how are you feeling about this? And how does this pressure uh, change what your number you're putting in? Because my sense is, and I think it's why, my sense is it's not always accurate. And uh, that's why I think every organization is always struggling to get the forecast rate, right? Mm-hmm. It never seems to be accurate. Um, and. And I think it's because we're not having an honest conversation often with each other. And there's so much pressure in the system. It's causing people to do wonky things. I think there's a skill gap too, right? Not understanding where your blockers are, where your obstacles are. You know, there's an experience factor there, right? Once you've been doing it long enough, you can, yes, you, you know. learn to start, like, especially as you move up the, the enterprise ranks, right? The more buyers involved in the deal, the longer the deal cycle, exactly. right? There's, there's more things um, like, you know, once you've well, like, and there's kind of ego involved, right? Like, I don't want to say that it's not coming through or I'm not going to make my number. So you, there's so much psychological stuff going on. And I think there's also, like you were saying that the, the bigger, the, the higher up you go, the longer it takes to close a deal. We mm-hmm. were working with one of the largest tech firms with the top thousand sellers. And one, one of the biggest deals 
that they ended up closing multi-million multi-year mm-hmm. took several years to close and the guy who was leading the charge almost got mm-hmm. fired mm-hmm. because he didn't wasn't closing it fast enough and so luckily they didn't fire him and then he closed one of the biggest deals okay so i i love that story but i want to push back on something that you said that this like i i don't I forget the nomenclature but like the hamster or like the pressure the system yeah. that reinforces it does create revenue right and so but the question is and and i'm with you on how experience right can kind of get in our way and impede like the beginner's mind mm-hmm. which i loved um but like what's to say that we could like the results couldn't be better that we yeah. couldn't get more revenue and so i'm thinking about win rate right and yeah. so one of the things that i'm loving about this moment in time is the amount of transparency around culture on mm-hmm. Salesforce, right? Because mm-hmm. I believe, sadly, most of us, right? And Salesforce, don't get me wrong, is an exquisite company, top of the line in every sense of the word, including management skill development, right? Understand, you know, so all of it. However, that's not the norm for most of us. Mm-hmm. And I'll even say Thomson Reuters was also exceptional, right? I loved, I loved being there. Um, but that said, when I am speaking with maybe some younger sellers or that haven't had as much exposure to different places, um, I, I find myself coaching often to, to around the win rate, right? What is the collective win rate of the team? And what is, and then equating that to like divisions in, let's just say basketball, right? Because you could be playing on a JV high school basketball team, right? And the win rate for inbound leads is under, you know, 10%, which is- yeah. A, a real thing, which is just like no further comment, or it could be up as, you know, 70, 80%. And that would be the equivalent of playing on a professional team. Mm-hmm. And if you're aspiring to become a professional ball player or a professional seller, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, by our definition, Ashley, mm-hmm. then it doesn't like, doesn't it make more sense to, you know, work with and be surrounded by professionals. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think that that, that mindset goes nicely into this. It does create revenue, but why can't it be better? And what, more importantly, why haven't we stopped to ask these questions in a while? Like, and so like with that, I'm going to toss it back to you. Like, what do you, what do you think? What have you seen as your, I don't want to say pitching clients, but you know, I've, I've, I've pitched one or two, you know, sales empowerment programs in my day. And so I know what that's like, like, what have you, what are you finding when you try to pose that back to potential clients? Well, I think, you know, I think the sales culture and whether people are willing to change has a lot to do of where they are in their own journey as a organization. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're super successful, like we were working with um, a company where they were so successful, the phone was just ringing off the hook, Mm -hmm. right? And so there wasn't actually a lot of motivation to change or to, you know, be more curious, more empathic, more customer centric, like they didn't need to be, there was no mm-hmm. motivation. Mm-hmm. So I think um, what I see is companies who start to work with us start to realize like they can't keep doing what they've been doing if they're going to continue to grow, if they, they have to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and they realize that they've moved away from or never were actually truly customer centric because right. what they were selling was novel and people needed it for whatever reason. And so they were just able to sell it without actually being what you were saying, like great professionals. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, you know, I, I am sort of, on the one hand, I see a lot of sort of a toxic culture of sales with so much pressure, focus on money. I think money really is corrupts us, right? We do all sorts of bad things for money. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, like, I think salespeople are so creative, so innovative, want to do the right thing, love their customers. And so um, there is a lot of energy when people are given the space to say, like, actually, I want to sell a little differently. I don't I don't I'm not loving the pressure here and sort of being forced into a mode of what I'm selling to my customer. I'd much rather be in this co-creative motion. I think it was it autonomy and creativity and experimentation, all things that you words that um, remind or that, that jumped to my head from the book. I, so we call these dynamic systems, right? When you've got a process that is flexible enough to allow for the end user, in this case, the sellers to adapt Mm -hmm. and to look for changes or differences in the way that the buyers are defining value. 
um, and what they need and, and, and to execute that. So it's a it's, it's possible to do right. To design a process that allows for that, that breathing room, right. You set your controls, you set your yeah. guardrails, right. Think bumper bowling, but people do have that autonomy. Yes. yes. Um, and the, the psychological safety. Yeah. And the space to be able to execute, like, and so this was one of my favorite questions that somebody that was talking about interviews posed recently. Like, when was the last time that you let one of the people sellers on your team try something different that yeah. you didn't believe in, mm. and what happened? Yeah. And it's and it's like I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's a. So then I think about the resistance, right, that people are met with when they try to diverge from mm -hmm. the plan and from mm -hmm. the process, which has been designed for the company, not the seller yeah. or the clients. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's tons of resistance. And I, I guess I, I fear or ego, right. Are two things that come into mind, but like, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And then on top of it, the risk, right. Of not right. winning, not you lose your job, you, you lose your job. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about vulnerability. I think sellers actually are, it's a very interesting dynamic around um, our relationship to vulnerability. Like on the one hand, we're super vulnerable because like, I literally have my number across the, my head and you know, if I'm making it or not, and I have to mm -hmm. show up every day mm -hmm. and keep hit, knocking on the doors, you know, and people and getting perhaps rejected or not. Um, and at the same time, I sort of have to have this armor on, right. Because I got to keep showing up. Right. And I got to keep doing it. And, um, and I, a lot of times got to pretend like I'm making it. Um, so that gets taxing and like friends, like, <sighs> that didn't work for me in the long run. I lasted about 10 years. And then I, like my emotions absolutely revolted and I, you know, had to learn how to, um, do interact with myself properly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, I really feel for the space right now in that sense. But again, at the same time, I'm like, so delighted to see, I don't want to say content because this book doesn't fit into content. This book is, it, it is the essence of injecting more joy into the profession, mm -hmm. Ashley. Yeah. And that is like what I'm about. And so like, you're speaking my love language friend, you're speaking my love language. <laughs> Six love language. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, uh, all right. So we got five minutes left before my final two questions. Okay. Like what you had said, you listened to one of the episodes on mm -hmm. mental health, like, which, like, mm -hmm. tell me more, which ones did you catch and why did you pick it? And what did you think? Um, what is it? Psych and sales, sales and psych. Oh maybe? yeah. Dr. Uh, Aaron Weiss. Oh, oh, the, on their show or when she came on, when Aaron came on. No, mine? no. Uh, when you were on their show. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and I just think, so I didn't get through the whole thing, but I just think it's such an interesting topic that I've too have been hearing more about. I don't see it so much in the systems that we work in. People aren't talking about it, but I've seen it like from people like you on the periphery who are talking about it and sort of highlighting it. There's a guy, Tim, I can't remember his last name who came Clark. out. Of Salesforce. Yeah. Founder yeah. of Uncrushed. Exactly. Great guy. And, you know, just like um, elevating this idea. And I guess, I guess I'm struck with, and I'm interested in what you would say is what is the relationship between money, pressure, and mental health? Because I feel like, you know, sellers are paid, you know, often the majority of their money is coming from whether they close the deal or not. Mm -hmm. And so there's this incredible pressure and then the reward is quite high. So it's like rewarding you for being out of your mind achievement. Yeah. So it's funny. So I was raised by a sales leader um, and my dad, so financial services, like you want to talk about like the psychology yeah. of, so there's a lot going on with money. Personally, I'm of the camp that money is a tool. It's a benign thing, just like water can, or fire can heat and feed and warm or whatever, but it could also burn the fucking village down. Oh, you're allowed to curse on the show. Just so you know, <laughs> um, it could burn the village down. Same thing with water, right? So money yeah. is a benign thing, but it's like that one is just ripe with value judgments, mm -hmm. not enough financial literacy. Mm -hmm. Um, personally, like I, mm, like I, I, got off on like making more than my peer group, right. In my twenties. And so it, it was a way, like I define, I, I weirdly, or maybe not that weird, like I associated my value, right. Mm -hmm. With right. how much and, I was making. So yeah. I had to unlearn that. Right. That was a, that was a fun one. Um, but I think that as it relates to money, I mean, 
there's a million places where the wellness trains just go off the tracks. Yes. And that is, that is one of the big ones, but at, and at the end of the day, right. My, the way that I, when I take a step back and I look at what we can do to make the world a better place or leave it, the forest greener than we found it is management skill development, mm. right. And coach and onboarding our new managers and teaching them about mm. the principles of, of the mentals, right. The mentals and how that impacts performance and productivity, right. And where those things truly come from, like autonomy, like experimentation, like creativity, the opposite of what we do, right. When we look at the day in, in the life of an SDR. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that that's a big piece of it, but for the money part, like, I think the literacy will mm -hmm. help tremendously to like alleviate that pressure, but then there's the, the upside, right. It's that overly equating your value. Yeah with your number. Right. And so it's separating yourself yeah. from your number. And, oh, and there was a line, Ashley, even in the book, and you said it about just to take yourself from the outcomes, mm -hmm. right? This is another yeah. big piece of it that also kind of ties with the money. And that is, um, like in Western societies, we tend to define or think of success as an outcome, right? When I get married, when I have a child, when they go off to college, when, yeah. when, 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 when I hit my number, right. Yeah when, 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 but the real reality is that, well, one, that's not where happiness lives, right? Happiness yeah. is in the present moment. And so we have to unwire ourselves, but even if we don't unwire ourselves, that mindset is exponentially more problematic for our profession because our, when never comes, Yeah, right? We hit our quarter where yeah. we have a weekend to think about it and it starts all over again. Yes. And so the, the, the mindset, that's why I loved the book when you hit on the mindset for each phase of, of yeah. the process, it, it is critical. And I think that teaching and empowering our, our frontline managers with the basics yeah. of this stuff is a, a so excellent way to start because right now we're not teaching anybody anything. Yeah. I know. I just got off the phone with someone today. I was saying we're, we're promote. we have 14 people in frontline managers of the SDRs and not one of them's ever managed before. They don't know what they're doing. At least they're talking about it. What? I said, at least your, your client, the people that yes, you're talking and about at least it. He wants to do something about it. Yeah. But I mean, it happens all the time, right? All the time, all the time. The article that led to the second sales interview, um, for sales hacker last year. Yeah. And you mentioned that. What was that? It's so it's, it's featured on my profile, but I'll put it in the show notes too, for our listeners. It's called the greatest competitive advantage you'll ever know in, in mental health. Yeah. And I go deep into the manager stuff, including we look at, um, well, uh, Peter's principle and uh -huh. Google has, they, they did a deep study on like the effectiveness of managers and business outcomes. Uh -huh. And when they, the first wave, they found eight factors that make for great managers. And then they, they did a, a re a reset and found two more psychological safety mm. being one of them for anyone interested in looking at program design, right. For onboarding of new managers, I would head right to that project oxygen site and breaks down. These are the 10, um, buckets, right. Of, and I think one of our biggest challenges in sales is that we only focus on the one, which is technical acumen, right. Mm -hmm. So if you were a good seller. Yeah. You're going to be you're going to be promoted. Now, the flip side is also true, right? Well, the best sellers don't make good managers. That's nonsense. We, we don't have yeah. good managers in this profession because we haven't been training or onboarding or focused on skill development of yeah. any kind. Um, but technical acumen is is on that list. But so, yeah, I would I would I would check out that article. Yeah, but, I will read it after this. And it's so this is the first time I'm saying it on 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 the show. So now it's like now it's going to happen. And I'm working on my book. My All first. Right. And it's, it's, this is going to be the topic. So the, just the operating title for right now, which I know is going to change, but it's sell well. And so ah, I, oh, I love that. Maybe oh God, no, it's out there. <laughs> it's out there. It's coming for sure. Sounds so, like you have the whole book in you. You just need to put it on paper. Uh, this is, isn't that, thank you. I received that. And yes, it is in me and I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited, but also nervous. All right. So final questions. All right. So the last one is the easy it's, it's what's one piece of advice about uncomfortable conversations, but before then, what is actually the most uncomfortable conversation that mm. you've ever had to have in like a revenue context mm. prospect mm. buyer, mm. client, buyer. boss, peer, um, adjacent, like a, a director in a different department, like yeah, I 
No, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was a guy who worked at GE who uh, was a misogynistic jerk. And um, he was a client. He was a big client of ours. And um, his, his, like, he scheduled a meeting with me that said something like, you know, um, Ashley will speak to Mike about what he, you know, wants or something like something terrible skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and douchey. Exactly. And so I had gone to the leadership of our company and was like, I'm not working with this guy and I don't care how much revenue he brings in. Like he's misogynistic, he's abusive mm -hmm. and everybody has had this experience. And now I'm the account manager, like, no. And, um, I asked for a backup and, um, they said, yeah, you can talk to him. And so I just had to have a difficult conversation. Like basically I wanted to say like, somehow I'm triggering your childhood stuff around your mother or something. And you're taking it out on me. Like this is not working. Wait, so the company wanted you to go and talk to the guy and tell him that you were going to move accounts. Yeah. That I was not, I didn't want to work with him anymore. And that this really? the way he was treating me was not working. Yeah, the company. And so I was asking for backup, like, you need to support me in this. Um, and of course, they were nervous about this, but they knew this was true. Mm -hmm. And so I just had to have this difficult conversation with him about like, this really isn't cool. And um, how did he receive that? Yeah, not very well. Um, um, and I think, you know, I think as much as the company wanted to back me up, because they believed in me and they knew I was right. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to lose the revenue either. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of moved it around and said, okay, well, we'll give him a new account manager. And so I don't know that I supported that move, but um, having yeah. that conversation was not an easy conversation. Oh, man. Um, did you know about this dude before you were given the account? Like, did, did yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And I wanted nothing to do with him. Um, yeah. I don't know anything about these experiences, um, <laughs> but it's nice that you were believed. Yes. I, it, I have to say I was very, I mean, the company I worked for was this wonderful, very sort of collaborative uh, company that was very much believed in each other. And so it's I funny. I had a, I had an interesting conversation with um, Casey Jones. And so she's, um, she does our galaxy, a bunch of stuff, a name. And we were talking offline about when is it worse? Like when it happens, right? Yeah. So selling at wall woman, when it happens or when you bring it internally uh -huh. and you're not believed. And like, I had never thought about it in that frame like that, but it's when, when, when you're not received or it's not believed or the company wants that revenue more. Yes. Then they want to believe you or they just want you to tolerate it because they just, want the it's, is it really that bad oh he's just joking like yeah. you need to grow a sense of humor like all of it um it's it it becomes worse and yeah. and it's like exponentially worse and so not to take away from your hard conversation but mm, yeah how long ago was that that was probably seven years ago <laughs> Okay. No further comment. We could talk more about this, but like, I, yeah. All right. This is your, this is your, you're dancing on my, um, my heartstrings here. Okay. So one piece of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. Well, I think one thing that gets uncomfortable for all of us is when we don't know where the conversation is going to go. And I think that's why as sellers, people want scripts or as managers, we want to give our sellers scripts. So you stick to the script. Um, and, um, because it comes uncomfortable. Like you don't, if you're going to go off script, you don't really know what's going to show up. And I think my advice is like to believe that there's actually magic in that ambiguity, right? That's where it happens. And that's where you connect. So to let go, like trust that if you just let go of having a clear like path, that it's going to be okay. And if you just stay connected and follow that person and ask questions that arise naturally, you'll create more connection and you will uncover more opportunity. You know, it's down that road, Neo. You've been down that road before. <laughs> it's amazing how, how frequently I can pull like matrix, the matrix wisdom into <laughs> 
<laughs> into regular conversation. Um, I'm about to buy like this big spoon just to re- remind myself that there is no spoon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's I, th- I'm, I think that's what's going to go there. Um, okay, but anyway, that's amazing. All right, so Ashley, obviously the book is going in the show notes. Your LinkedIn right. profile is going in the show notes. How can people find you? And like, what are you working? Like, what's coming next? Yeah. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me. My email is Ashley at somersaultinnovation.com with one end, one M in somersault. Um, I love talking to people anywhere in organizations. Um, and what's coming next? Well, I think two things for somersault, um, two places we're going, we're going, working with like transforming whole go-to-market communities, Mm -hmm. like every role, how is that whole go-to-market community differentiating themselves in the marketplace mm-hmm. and how they sell. And then secondarily, working higher and higher and up in organizations to help enterprise sellers who sell these big, massive digital transformation deals, figure out really how to orchestrate themselves and co-create with their customer in spaces that sort of have never been tried before because digital transformation, we don't even know. What does that even look like? Yeah, no, it's funny. Like what it was one of the themes that I noticed around discovery, like where, where are we great at discovery? And when, yeah. when there's category defining, like you don't sell category defining it unless you're great at discovery, you know? So, but all right. I'm also like, I'm really want to dig into, maybe we'll do this again, but actually mm-hmm. like the tools. Mm, yes. Happy to like we a could breakdown. Even, I mean, I don't know if you're always podcast, but I was going to say, we, no, I, we could do whiteboard it. Yeah. yeah. How do you do it? That's, that's, yeah. this is the other thing. And so this is getting moved. The whiteboard's going here. Right. We um, could do your journey map. Oh, we could. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll do a part two. You'll come yeah. back and yeah, we'll, we'll break down the tools for sellers so that they yep. can, um, they know how to apply. Um, obviously sellers, if you're listening to that episode, your ass better have bought the book, read the book, <laughs> used the tools in the book, and then this will be the 301 course. <laughs> All right. So with that, Ashley, thank you so thank much for making you. time for us. This of was course. so fun. Yes. Anytime. So fun. And yay. All right, listeners, you guys Get your too. book out. <laughs> I Don't have to perfection. Good enough. <laughs> Get your book out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends. Thank you for staying around for the remainder of the conversation and happy selling. Bye, Ashley. Thank you. Bye. So that was Ashley Welch on the intersection of design thinking and sales. Anyone interested in injecting the buyer experience directly into the heart of how you sell? or how you open opportunities even, should absolutely pick up a copy of Ashley's book, Naked Sales. Cannot go wrong. And that wraps another installment of the Revenue Reel Hotline. Thank you for hanging out today with us through the remainder of the conversation. It means the world, friends. If you found any value in things discussed, do tell a friend. I take that as the highest compliment. Truth, love, and joy, friends, and happy selling.